You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's a high-stakes election, and it's on track to be one of the most litigated in U.S. history. It's been complicated by changes to balloting prompted by the coronavirus and President Trump repeating misinformation about voting by mail. But this mail-in voting where they've mailed indiscriminately millions and millions of ballots to people, you're never going to know who won the election. You can't have that. There are a flood of lawsuits in 42 states and D.C. that will determine how easy or hard it will be to cast your ballot. Joining me is election law expert Justin Levitt, a professor at Loyola Law School. So, Justin, you've actually been tracking the cases, and at last count, there were 192 cases. I want to be clear. That's not just election law cases. There are more than that. That's only election law cases that say the pandemic changed things. If you add up the disputes that were still pending before COVID-19 or those that don't depend on the pandemic, there are quite a few more. It's a very litigious season. It certainly is. I see your list grows all the time. Briefly or broadly describe what the cases are that are non-pandemic related. There are some that are still lingering from before March. If your listeners remember, there was a time before March, and I know it's hard. (laughs) It's really hard to get back there now. There were disputes over the rules of elections, and apart from pandemic, about whether, for example, absentee balloting rules were too strict, about whether there were processes for notifying people about mistakes, about whether people with convictions were entitled to vote or not, or whether the state knew whether they were entitled to vote or not. There's an ongoing dispute in Florida that boils down to, can the state restrict your right to vote until you've paid off fines and fees for a conviction when the state can't tell you how much you owe? A horrible state of affairs, but it has nothing to do with the pandemic. So let's turn to the pandemic cases. They also cover a broad range of issues, and most of them seem to relate to mail-in balloting. Yeah, I'd say there are three or four big blocks of cases, and mail-in balloting is a super big one. The first and easiest to understand may be cases that have to do with the primaries or petitioning on to the general election, where you have to get signatures. So lots of minor party candidates, some major party candidates, um, some initiatives, some citizens' initiatives want to know if they can get onto the ballot or not. The main way we do that is by getting signatures and by having people stand out and collect people's signatures as they walk by into large gatherings. We don't have any large gatherings anymore. And so it's really hard to collect those signatures. And there's been a lot of litigation about that. There's been a lot of litigation about, as you say, the mail-in ballot system about, well, on one end, whether it is as available as it needs to be in a pandemic things like the need to get notaries or witness signatures, things like deadlines for when to request or when to submit, things like whether you need to submit with postage, things like whether you need an excuse. Those are all under contest. There are also a few pieces of litigation about emergency steps that executives have taken, public health officials, governors, or secretaries of state, expanding access to mail ballots and litigation over whether those officials had the right to do that, either under the federal constitution or the state constitution. And then there's a fourth set of issues around the in-person process, because we will still have an in-person process, even with all of these mail ballots. The goal is not to shut out or shut down any in-person balloting. It's to leave space for in-person balloting for those who need it most. So there will still be people at the polls, and there's still some litigation over the conditions for actually going to the polls this November. 
election officials in many places want to consolidate the polling places to reduce in-person voting, which would lead to more lines and perhaps less people voting. Well, I want to push back on that a little bit. The consolidation is right. So I think many, 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 many officials want there to be fewer locations. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. So just take two examples. One is a jurisdiction where there are lots of polling places, but you have to vote at your neighborhood polling place. And that means that they have to spread out resources all over the place, which means maybe um, your poll workers aren't the best trained. Maybe your polling place doesn't have the best disability access. Maybe your polling place doesn't have the best language access. If something breaks, it can be difficult to get to your polling place to fix it because it's so decentralized. Maybe they run out of ballots. Right? There, there are lots of pros to lots of neighborhood polling places, but also some downsides. Compare that to a jurisdiction that has fewer locations that are a little more centralized, but where you can choose to go to any of them, where they're better staffed, more accessible, better resources, easier to fix because there are fewer locations that are bigger. They may be, that may actually be a better voting experience. Um, so I don't want to suggest that the sheer number of locations alone is dispositive. Sometimes less is more. Sometimes less is less, and sometimes more is more. It all depends on how you actually design these things. I mean, we saw in Milwaukee in the primary, um, they all of a sudden had a whole bunch of poll workers quit and a whole bunch of locations they couldn't offer. And going from more to less without planning for it is a disaster. Uh, there's absolutely no question Milwaukee was a nightmare. Louisville is an interesting alternative. In June, Louisville had an election, and they had one polling place. Because they couldn't get enough poll workers, it's really hard to be a poll worker right now, um, because they couldn't get enough poll workers, they decided to consolidate resources as best they could in the convention center. And so it was this cavernous space where everybody could be socially distant, where they could have a relatively lean staff serving an awful lot of people. And it seemed to go really well with one polling place. So the sheer number isn't the important thing. The planning for the number is the important thing. And I think an awful lot of election officials are now, yes, trying to consolidate because they know they're going to have fewer people volunteering and fewer spaces uh, that are open. And they're trying to plan how best to serve the voters in those circumstances. And this is a broad generalization. But as I look through these different kinds of lawsuits and the challenges to election procedures, it seems as if the main ground is that it would lead to voter fraud. So there are two different types of election cases out there. Some are trying to open the system up a bit because the current system we have wasn't designed for a pandemic. And so they're trying to create flexibility based on the pandemic. And those are based on burdens to the voters. There are another set of cases that are trying to close things down a bit that say that the steps the states have taken are going too far. There are fewer of those cases. It's by no means the majority. I would say there are roughly 10, 11, 12 are trying to shut things down. But you do see in the litigation over opening things up, you see people opposing that, also making the same argument. And that is either you state official don't have the power 
under state law to do what you're doing. It's got to be another body like the legislature or whoever's got the power to do it. This is going to create the conditions for lack of security, for fraud in the process. I will say the courts have not been kind to that argument without proof. Again, it's one thing to stand up in the public and assert that there will be more fraud if X or Y, or assert that things are less secure if X or Y. It's quite another thing to have to prove to a court that this method that you're contesting is so problematic that the election outcome is going to be in dispute. And the courts so far really haven't bought it. You mentioned it's one thing to a certain public. President Trump has repeatedly said that mail-in ballots, except in Florida, are subject to massive fraud, and his campaign is suing the state of Nevada. Is mail-in balloting subject to more fraud than in-person balloting? Yeah, these claims are one of the president's less charming characteristics. I would say there is a nugget of truth, but I think it's a nugget that has been wrapped in a pile of horse manure. So the sorts of massive national scale rigging that the president is talking about, there's absolutely no evidence to support that. I would say there is incremental risk in the mail-in balloting process that something will go awry, but that's more like if the in-person voting process is a one, then the mail-in balloting process may be a three on a scale of 100 or 500. Things do go wrong from time to time, and they are more likely to go wrong in the mail-in process than in the in-person process, but not by much and not on, this is really important, not on the scale that the president's asserting. On the rare occasions that you do see things go wrong in the absentee process, they're either individual ballots, people casting a ballot for a dearly departed relative because they know that's how they would have wanted to vote or in some way coercing a family member. But those are really one-off things. When on the very rare occasions where there's any sort of conspiracy to rig an election or steal an election, it's invariably a local election, a municipal election, a county election. That's not forgivable, but it's more understandable because there are simply fewer ballots that you would have to steal. And that means a less expansive conspiracy. It happens every once in a blue moon. It happened in North Carolina a few years ago. There was a big scandal in North Carolina's Bladen County about taking absentee ballots and either ripping them up or rewriting them. But it didn't really affect matters statewide, and it sure wouldn't have affected matters in the national. It's incredibly hard. I mean, we have a very resilient election system. It's a good thing. The president seems to be doing his best to break it. But we have an election system that is very resilient, particularly for statewide races and national races, and is really quite resilient the vast majority of the time for races that are more local than that. Pennsylvania has drop-off boxes for ballots, and it's being sued over them. Tell us about that. So I think most people can think of ballot drop boxes as just like a postal box, a mailbox, where you go down to the corner and you open up the slot and you drop your mail in. Um, They are sort of semi-permanent, secure locations where people can put important stuff that they want to get delivered. Most of the time it's mail. And then for elections... Uh, Election officials will occasionally put up separate ballot drop boxes, just as you described. Um, They are ways to drop off an absentee ballot if you don't have a stamp. Um, They're ways to drop off an absentee ballot if you can't find a post office. 
there are ways to drop off an absentee ballot if the post office doesn't happen to be very accessible in your neighborhood. So there are ways for very rural or very urban populations to find a place to drop off a ballot where finding a P.O. box or finding a mailbox may be actually harder. Um, it's a way of giving people a little added security that your ballot's going to get there uh, because election workers go around and pick up uh, everything that's dropped in these drop boxes at the end of the day, um, actually several times a day in some jurisdictions. Um, so it's a way of giving people assurance that your ballot's going to get there without having to stand in line at a polling place if you've got a ballot that you can fill out and drop off ahead of time. How will the court decide that kind of a case? I think, so So this is a case that's been brought in Pennsylvania, um, and the case that's been brought is by the Trump campaign, and it's attempting to stop the state from putting out these drop boxes. I don't think there's very good um, legal support for that attempt, uh, and so I suspect that the challenge will fail. The ostensible concern is that these drop boxes aren't secure, but there's very little proof of that. I think it's unlikely that some of the arguments that are made in the public sphere are going to fly with judges who are going to demand some evidence. Do you think the Supreme Court will have a role in the upcoming election? There will certainly be more things presented to the Supreme Court. And yeah, the thing that they've done is actually one of the more aggravating parts of this process. They haven't actually ruled on much. The one case where they issued a ruling, and it was really just a modification of an order below, was in Wisconsin in the flurry of last-minute pandemic-caused adjustments or lack of adjustments to Wisconsin's primary election, which was a disaster. An awful lot of things went wrong because people didn't plan for the flexibility early enough. Of course, those were still in the early days. That primary was in the first week of April, and things were moving very quickly at that point. Much of the country had just entered a shutdown phase. The Supreme Court stepped into that decision in a relatively modest way. They have weighed in in other cases, but what they've done hasn't been a ruling. What they've done has largely been either a stay of an injunction below or a refusal to vacate a stay that was put in place by an appellate court. That is, it's really been pressing the pause button or failing to unpress the pause button rather than issuing rulings on cases. Most of the cases have been resolved at lower courts. That'll continue to be the case. Occasionally, the Supreme Court may step in to press pause, but when they've done so, They've done so without issuing an opinion telling anybody why. And that is increasingly looking like power rather than law when there's a real dispute over whether to press pause. And the Supreme Court just says, stop, because I said so, without explaining why. There will probably be a number of other opportunities for the Supreme Court to press pause in the months ahead. I don't have a sense for its appetite for doing so, when it will decide to do so, when it won't. There's relatively little that will sort of go up for resolution by the Supreme Court rather than this procedural pause before November, I suspect. Does the increased number of mail-in ballots we're going to see in the presidential election necessarily mean there'll be a delay in reporting the results? There may well be. A delay in reporting the results is not a break in the system. That's the system working. So we actually have procedures for counting the vote. We have procedures for counting the vote on election day. We have procedures for counting the absentee ballot or the mail ballot that arrives beforehand. Um, It is 
some jurisdictions allow local offices to get started counting the mail ballots before election day. But inevitably, just like my students wait until the day before an exam to start, just like we all wait to file our taxes on the last day, people will wait to file their absentee ballots until the end of the process. That's inevitable. And so there'll be a lot of absentee ballots coming in at the end of the cycle. Um, P.S. Check the rules in your state. Different states have different deadlines for when those absentee ballots have to be in. Um, that's one of the things that there's a lot of litigation over right now. And so in some states, you actually have to have your ballot in by election day. If you really wait until the last minute, you might be out of luck. But under any scenario, that means there'll be an awful lot of mail-in ballots arriving late in the process. And they're harder to count. They're just more cumbersome to count. They're more timely to count um, than the votes on election day. And what that means is, yes, we may be waiting a little bit to find out who won if a state is particularly close, and there will likely be a few states where things are particularly close. But it's really important to remember that that delay in the results doesn't mean the system is broken. It means the system is working. It means nonpartisan people are behind the scenes trying to figure out who cast ballots for whom. And that's something where we, the American people, are going to have to learn a great degree of patience. We're used to seeing the countdown clock to when the polls close, and we're used to getting an answer about who won instantly. Those answers have never been official. When CNN says, we announced that X has won the great state of wherever state, that's never official. That's a projection and an estimate. The official numbers come in a couple weeks later after the nonpartisan bean counters have had their time in the back room sorting out what the actual results were. We may have fewer projections this time because there will be fewer uh, votes cast in person because the modeling for figuring out who probably won won't be quite as robust. And if that's true, that just means that we're all going to have to be more patient in relying on the real process to work rather than getting the advanced sneak estimate answer. Thanks, Justin. That's Justin Levitt, a professor at Loyola Law School. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune to the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. 